Well, as always, we're so blessed today to worship the Lord by studying and singing His Word. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we are studying the final section of that chapter, really two paragraphs there in the ESV, verses 29 to 39. First paragraph you see is 29 to 31, then the second, 32 to 39. Let me read this for us today, and then we'll get to our study. Follow along as I read aloud. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. And they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel." And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took, seven, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the Word of God. Before we get into deeply in our study of Matthew 15 here, earlier I read from Romans chapter 2. Romans 2 is a great companion passage to this part of Matthew. In fact, maybe in the margin of your Bible there in Matthew, we want to write Romans 2, 4. Very important. Why? Because there we find the reason for the compassion of God. The the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of God, any kind of love or kindness or patience or forbearance that, that God gives to humanity is not just a detached emotion, just sort of feeling sorry for our plight. No, there is a, an evangelistic, there is a gospel idea behind His compassion. His compassion, His kindness is to lead us to repentance. In fact, let me read there out of Romans chapter 2. Let me just read the whole section again just to remind you what it says. Therefore, this is talking to the moralists. Paul, if you remember back several years ago when we did our study of Romans, Paul there in Romans 2, in Romans 1, he's talked to the people who are immoral and their condemnation before God. Now he's talking to the moralist, the person that thinks that they can be good enough to get to heaven. He's speaking to them. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... These are people who look down on the sinners. In passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, we're looking at verse 4 there, sort of to help us with our understanding of this section of Matthew. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, when, when mankind received that command from God, initially Adam, and Adam then carrying that command, that word of God to Eve, explaining it to her, the, the Lord put man in the Garden of Eden. He gave him one command, you can surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was only one sin at the beginning, but if you committed that one sin, the punishment was indeed death. And of course, the people did. They committed that sin. They rejected God, and they died spiritually, and eventually they died physically. So the punishment for sin was indeed death. Now, I do believe they were resurrected. I believe Adam and Eve were saved later on in chapter 3 after they sinned and God brought the sacrifice. I believe they believed in that and believed the promises of God there. But it was established from the very beginning that the, the penalty of sin is death. The penalty of all sin is death. Paul reiterates this in chapter 6 of Romans. The wages of sin is death. Sin is such an affront to God. Sin is such an affront to God's holiness, God's perfection. What God has done for us is such an affront to God that sin always deserves death. But what happens when we sin? Lightning bolt from the sky, we die. Immediate death, not at all. What happens when we sin? Well, usually not much, at least initially. They don't see usually and instantly after we sin. Now, sometimes it's the case. We see the results of that sin or the, the negative impact of that sin. But, but oftentimes is the case. We sin and there's, there's nothing negative that happens, at least in the immediate sense. In fact, we sin oftentimes and we sin... More, we sin more, and yet God is patient. God is merciful. God is kind. No immediate judgment, though we deserve it, only kindness, only forbearance, only patience. Now, these are these three words that are used here in Romans 2, these three words, kindness, forbearance, and patience. And this is an attitude, this is a, a gift that God gives to all mankind, not just His elect, not just His people, not just those who are saved, He gives all mankind this kindness and forbearance and patience. Look at those three words, kindness. The word there in, in Romans is krestotes. It's really related to grace. Some translations say goodness. It's the giving of goodness, the expression of God's goodness. It means that God continually pours out blessing upon people. He continues to give them and bless them. The Bible says, Jesus actually says, that God reigns on both the just and the unjust. In other words, the reigns that are needed for an agrarian culture to survive, He gives it not just to righteous people, but He also gives that blessing to unrighteous people. Is this not true? We see this in the world all the time. Unrighteous people, ungodly people, people who even hate God and despise God, they, they enjoy all kinds of blessings. They enjoy the blessings of family and, and laughter, and, and they enjoy the blessings of this world and nature. They enjoy the blessings of a job well done. They enjoy the blessings of financial success, all kinds of blessings they enjoy. God continues to, to bless them and pour out His goodness upon them. He gives them His kindness. 
The purpose of that kindness is to call people to Himself. It is to call people to see His grace, to turn to Him, to thank God for it. That's the purpose of kindness. The next word that Paul uses there is the word forbearance. You could say delay or a, a pause, temporary ceasefire. You could even say the word tolerance. God puts up with. He tolerates, not in an ultimate sense, not in an eternal sense. Justice will happen, but for the time being, he tolerates sin. Again, if you understand the most horrifying, the, the horrifying nature of even the smallest sin, you could, you could somehow wrap your mind around how, how great a violation even the smallest sin is, you would instantly be aware of God's great tolerance, that God is constantly tolerating and putting up with and being patient with the human race. Really, there's, with every breath you take, it's essentially an announcement that God is putting up with us. With every breath that every lost person takes, every breath that the sinner takes, it's an announcement that God has great forbearance and is kind toward us. Third word there is patience. The original language is macrothumia. You even heard the word macro. It's all-encompassing. It's huge. You could say this is God's big-heartedness. The, the old King James, magnanimity. He is magnanimous towards us. God knows all. He sees all. He sees every sin. He sees every detail, every thought, every bad motive. He sees all of it. He zooms in and sees all of it, and yet he is patient. He is big-hearted. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't damn you immediately. He's patient. The word there in the original is used to, about those who have the legal power to execute justice but they don't do it. And again, you can see, looking around this world and all the terrible things that happen in this world, all the things that happen in our society all the time, every day, even the, uh, this very moment as I preach on the Lord's Day, there's terrible things in this world happening, happening, and yet God is patient. Why? That's the purpose of this passage, ask that question, why? Why does God not judge everyone immediately? Why is God forbearing and patient and kind to all of humanity? And the reason is because God wants that kindness to call us to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, there's these people, they're mocking Christians, they're mocking the idea that we believe that Christ will return. Where is the promise of His coming, they ask? In other words, you Christians are so foolish, you believe in this ridiculous Christ, this Jewish man from 2,000 years ago, you believe He's coming back, how ridiculous is that? And Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is giving people a chance. God is being patient. God is being forbearing. God is being kind so that people would see that kindness and repent. I can't help but wonder if there's some people in this very room and you have not yet had faith in Christ. You've not yet repented and Perhaps even just looking at this story here in Matthew and the words of Paul, maybe you realize the great kindness of God. Maybe you need to repent even now. The Puritan William Gurnall said, The greatest miracle in the world is God's patience and bounty to an ungrateful world. God's constant patience with us. And the purpose of that is to bring us to repentance. If you remember... 
Luke chapter 13 starts out with this group of people who come to Jesus and they, they're asking Jesus basically the, the age-old question of evil. Why is evil in the world? And some people had died, a, a tower had fallen on them, some other people, some Jewish people had been gathered up by Pontius Pilate and, and, and killed, executed, and their, their blood was mingled with the blood of some pagan sacrifices. And, and, and they're asking, why, why would bad things happen? Why does God allow all this evil? And Jesus doesn't answer the way that you might think he would answer. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise be judged. You will likewise be punished. What's he saying? He's saying the fact of the matter is God should kill us all. The fact of the matter is God should kill and wipe out the entire human race. And upon seeing this, this is a great mercy upon you. Upon seeing someone die, it ought to cause you to say, you know what? God should do that to me and, and because I deserve it. I, I turn from my sin. I turn to Jesus Christ. Patience forbearance. In other words, Jesus is saying, see God's kindness. See God's patience. You deserve justice. You deserve to perish. And yet, God is patient. In the end, the fact that you're still alive and living and breathing and enjoying the things of this world, it should call you to see the great kindness of God and lead you to faith and repentance. We all deserve to die, folks. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve immediate, instantaneous condemnation to hell, yet God is kind. And He's kind in order to call us to look to Him, to repent. Yet it is sad. People, by and large, maybe even this includes some of you, by and large, people presume on, they take for granted this kindness, they take for granted the fact that they can continue to breathe and enjoy and live life. They take for granted the great kindness and forbearance and patience that God gives them. They, they really live their life just assuming that this is sort of what God owes them. One author said that people, by and large, trade on the mercy of God. In other words, they live life, they do life banking on the mercy of God. I remember one time D.A. Carson was preaching. He said he was witnessing to a young man at one point and talking about his sin, his need of faith and repentance and to find the forgiveness of God. And the young man, they were speaking in French, the young man said something like this, I'm not worried. God will forgive me. In the end, that's his job. Living on the mercy of God, banking on it, taking it for granted, not repenting, not loving God, not worshiping God in face of that kindness and forbearance, but instead just saying, hey, he owes it to me. It's his job. Well, let's look back at Matthew. This is the purpose of this entire section. If you remember, this section has two areas, starting back up in the end of 14. There's two areas. The first one is at the end of 14. The second one is what we're looking at today that demonstrate God's kindness, that demonstrate the kindness and warmth and forbearance and patience of Jesus Christ. He demonstrates it in Christ, and then we have two responses each. The first response we saw at the beginning of 15, it was a negative response. That was the response of the Pharisees. And then we saw last week the positive response of the Canaanite woman. Now we have another demonstration. This demonstration is, sort of finds its climax in the feeding of 4,000 this time, or probably many more than that since it was probably 4,000 households there. And again, we have a negative response of the religious leaders and then the ultimate response, this is really what Peter's wanting, or I'm sorry, Matthew's wanting us to see. He wants us to draw, up, draw ourselves all the way to this point where we make this confession, the, the same confession of Peter, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. But today is a demonstration. 
I've entitled the sermon today, The Demonstration of Divine Compassion and Power. I mean, this demonstration of divine compassion and divine power should lead us to a place of faith and repentance, a place of humble gratitude, a place of self-denial, a place of discipleship, following Jesus. And even if you've already done that, what a great reminder, what a great encouragement to continue in this love that God has given us, to continue to see and to savor divine compassion and to respond with, with faith and fellowship. We should all respond as we see this in humble adoration of the one who provided salvation, Jesus Christ. So let's gaze upon this in the next few moments. We see two things. These two paragraphs give us two thoughts to hang our, uh, uh, two points to hang our thoughts on. Number one, we see compassion and power for individuals. Compassion and power for individuals. It says in verse 29, it's sort of a setting verse. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. If you just sort of think about what's been going on in the book of Matthew, really the last section, he was way up, many, many miles away in the region of Syrophoenicia, deep into that region for a time of retreat. So between verse 28 and 29, there's many, many days, perhaps weeks, perhaps even a couple of months. In fact, we know it was several months because, first of all, it would have taken a number of days just to travel back down to to Galilee. Secondly, because if you look at the other Gospels, you find out that there's a lot of things that happen between these two events, the, uh, the, the Canaanite woman up in uh, deep in Tyre or Sidon up in those cities and deep in that region. There's several things happen on their trip back to Galilee. Third, the language here indicates that some time had passed, at least from a climate sense. The language indicates that the people, the, the 4,000 now, not 3,000, not 5,000, but the 4,000 now uh, sat on the ground, and it really means bare earth. They sat on uh, dirt, and it would only be that way in the fall. So perhaps the first time they sat down, it was grass. It seems to indicate they sat down on the grass, and the second time they sat down on dirt. So some months had passed. Maybe the first feeding was maybe in June, and the second time there in perhaps August. So a number of weeks had passed, maybe a couple of months. Jesus and disciples really did have a time of retreat. They took a time of rejuvenation, vacation, I think for one thing, this tells us that extended vacations are okay for us to take so long as we focus focus them not on hedonism and self-indulgence, but on the Lord, on on rejuvenation, on prayer, on following Christ, on meditation. Just think about the Old Testament Jewish calendar. I mean, they they were programmed to have a number of feasts, a number of weeks, times off. If you were newly wed, you couldn't even go to battle. If you were around... And follow the Jewish calendar, not only would you have days and weeks and and times during the year, there would also be a time every seventh year where basically you took a year off. There are times, extended times of focus and meditation. And that's what Jesus and the disciples had done as they went up into Syrophoenicia. They they had taken time to rejuvenate, to to, to focus on their uh, intensely on, on the Lord, on their relationship with God. 
It's not about self-indulgence. It's about spiritual rejuvenation. I, I think of a number of my favorite preachers throughout the, throughout the centuries, really. If you study their lives, what you find out is these preachers would, would go from a tense time of, of ministry to others to an intense time of ministry to God. They would take time, maybe two, three, four months even. Charles Spurgeon would take every summer and spend down in the south of France, not to get a savage tan. You can see that by looking at him. Not to exercise, obviously, but to spend time focusing on God. And this is what the disciples had done with Jesus. They had taken a time of rejuvenation. So just a bit of context here. They had been on this retreat for several weeks, perhaps even two or three months, and now Jesus is headed back to Galilee to his intense external ministry, from intense internal ministry to intense external ministry there in Galilee again. He gets back to Galilee. He did the very same thing that he did the last time he was in Galilee. He goes up on a hill off the shores of Galilee, and he called the people to him, and thousands upon thousands of people came, and he spoke to them and healed them. And eventually he fed them. Verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. And the great, and that crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. What a, what a beautiful picture. Just put yourself back there in that first century. Can you imagine the, the exciting news getting out? Jesus is back. He's come back. He, he didn't leave us forever. He's come back, and, 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 and the miracle worker is back among us. And, and last time I didn't get a chance to go, or I didn't take my mother-in-law or, or my friend or whoever it was. I didn't get a chance to go to him, and, and, and he's back. And you can just imagine the, 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 the news spreading across Galilee and people gathering up their stuff and getting a little something to eat and getting their children and getting their families, getting all together and beginning to, to search and to find. Eventually they find him, a very similar place up on a hill as it rose out of the sea basin of Galilee. He's back, and it does the very same thing. It demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his compassion. He says very clearly, people showed up who couldn't walk, who couldn't speak, who couldn't see. People had legitimate needs. This was not some kind of Benny Hinn revival service, right? where they exclude the people with real needs and sort of shove them to the side and they have all these plants to come up and do all this. They didn't, Jesus didn't turn anybody away. He didn't focus on people he thought might have sort of weak uh, illnesses that he might could psych them into feeling better for a moment for the crowd. No, Jesus healed them. Everyone could see that Jesus healed people that did not have eyeballs. Suddenly, eyeballs grew. People who'd never walked in their life, they didn't even have the muscles to stand. They didn't even know how to walk, and yet suddenly they're leaping and jumping and praising God. Did you know in the the life and ministry of Jesus, His most angry and spiteful detractors never, never discounted the miracles of Jesus. They never said, He's not doing this. This is fake. We can prove it. They, 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 the best they could do is come up with, well, wait, he's doing this by some other power, the power of Beelzebub. That's the best they could do. Here Jesus is healing person after person, and it's, and it's verifiable, and it's true, and it's real, and it's amazing. It's not just some little backache or some little minor pain, them feeling better for a moment. No, these people are getting new limbs, new eyes. And people are marveling. They're wandering about Jesus. They're in this state of amazement. The last phrase it says there, and they glorified the God of Israel. Good start for sure. I mean, at least they're focusing their 
praise and worship on the God of Israel. But I think this is very similar to what we find at the triumphal entry. They don't really fully understand or accept Jesus as the one and only Messiah. They they certainly accept Him as a great prophet. They certainly see this as something divine. This is something from Yahweh. They, They certainly worship God for this. We know this because later on in chapter 16, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say they am? Some people say John the Baptist, some people say Jeremiah, Ezekiel, one of the prophets. They had all kinds of speculation, and they knew it was divine, and it was from God, so they worshiped God, but they didn't do as the disciples after Jesus walked on water. They didn't worship Jesus. They worshiped God. Again, maybe a good start, but His kindness, again, should not just lead us to some sort of generic idea of a God in heaven, but it should lead us to repentance. It should leave us to, lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. It should lead us to surrender everything and follow Him. That's what His compassion and power for individuals should lead us to. In fact, you think about your own life and think about God's compassion on you. Maybe you haven't needed the kind of miracle, or maybe you have, but perhaps God has had compassion on you, and there's ways you can look in your life and see How many great blessings, how many acts of God, even every breath that God gives you, what an act of compassion do you have faith in Him and follow Him? The second paragraph demonstrates Jesus' compassion and power for crowds. So Jesus has this compassion and power, one individual for three days, after the next, after the next, one after the other, after the other. People come, individual, Jesus speaks with them, talks to them. And then we move to this section of the feeding of 4,000, 4,000 households, probably 10 or 20,000 people. And Jesus has compassion on them as a whole, not just individuals, but on them as a whole. He understands their plight. Look there at verse 32. Jesus called His disciples to Him. He said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days and have had nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. They should have seen what's coming, right? I mean, they should understand here. Directing the crowd to sit on the ground, that's the word earth there, get the idea that it is dirt. He took up the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave it to the disciples. The disciples gave it to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full. And the, the idea here is that the idea of fullness, of wholeness. There was a, a completion, seven fish there and seven baskets. I don't know that we can read in too much more in numerology here, but those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. That's how they counted, by household. And after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan. What's happening here? We go from the simple individual troubles to the wide-scale problem of the human race. He looks upon, as it were, the human race. And he sees their dilemma. They're going to die. They're starving. There's need. Interesting here, it's been some days, not just a, a full day, but some days of them sort of putting together the scraps they brought with them. Maybe they learned from last time, we can't bank on Jesus doing the miracle again, so let's take some food with us. So, so clearly they had some snacks with them, but by the time three days gets on, there's hardly anything. Jesus recognizes their need. He recognizes their desperate position. He says, if I send them away, just walking to the next village, they're going to faint. Some people are going to die. Some people are going to pass out. Maybe people will pass away. 
And what we're supposed to see here, I believe, is that Jesus has compassion on the whole human race. Jesus has compassion on all who would come, whosoever will come, whosoever would be willing to come to the bread of life. And let me wrap this up by taking us to something that John records for us not long after this happened. And I think this is the whole point here. John chapter 6, if you look in verse 25 all the way down to 35, really the whole section there, it sort of says the same thing over and over again. And what again, the question is, what is Jesus' purpose of His compassion for this crowd? Just to show a miracle, to prove that He's amazing? Just to fill their bellies? John 6, 25 and following tells us something a little different. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words... I know why you guys track me down, because now you think it's something normal that I owe you. You're banking, you're trading on my mercy and my kindness. You you think that it's my job now to feed everybody. That's why you've tracked me down. I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the God the Father has set His seal. And they said to Him, "What, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. They said to Him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're still after the same thing. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, we'll believe, we'll believe. Why don't you feed us first? As it is written, they said, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see his purpose? His purpose was not just to fill their bellies. It was to give them a demonstration that he indeed is the bread of life, that they must ingest him. They must take to him. They must turn away from their desire for all the fleshly stuff, even the healings and the physical stuff. Even though those are great, those are just a demonstration of a a greater truth, the, the greater truth being that Jesus is the bread of eternal life. I think as we gaze upon Christ today, as we look upon his compassion as we look at the things that he did, we're not to conclude that, oh, Jesus owes me a, an easy life, a, a life with a good paycheck, a life with no cancer, a life of ease. No, all of those miracles, all of that feeding, all of that demonstration of power and compassion is to demonstrate one thing, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And that being the case, we should believe and follow Him. In fact, sometimes God withdraws physical blessing to bring us to that point, doesn't He? To bring us to the point of, of, of a convinced, convicted conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, and we must give our lives to Him. He alone is the one who can grant us eternal life because He is the bread of life. 
Well, let us partake of that love and let us see and worship Him because of this. Bow your heads with me. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. Thank You for this wonderful passage, a, a great demonstration of the compassion and love and kindness of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we not conclude that You owe us some kind of physical blessing. May we come to that right conclusion that we must follow Jesus, that Jesus' compassion is to, to call us to repentance and to faith and to discipleship. Lord, as Christians, may we not miss the point and misinterpret what is done here into some kind of prosperity gospel. May we interpret it as, as what it really is, that the very words of Jesus says. It's not about physical bread. It's about partaking of the spiritual bread. It's about following the good shepherd. So, Lord, grant us that this morning. I pray even for those who are believers who've made that decision, who've repented by faith, trusted Christ, and followed Him. Lord, what a great message to continue in this faith, to continue in this repentance, to continue to be grateful and, and, and thankful and worshipful for the great kindness that you show us. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would grant them faith, grant them repentance, open their eyes, convict them of their sin, call them to faith in Jesus Christ, grant them repentance. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.